Here we are with another edition of Agent Provocateur. I'm Alan Walsh with Adam Wild. How are you, Adam? I'm great, Alan. I'm really excited for today. Today's going to be cool because we got you on the hot seat. And uh, we've got a bunch of questions from SDPN listeners uh, and listeners outside the SDPN. You know, it's funny. I I put out a tweet saying, hey, you know, you can ask Alan Walsh anything. And I think my follower account went up by like 50. People are like, well, I got questions. I want to know what's this guy is because here's the thing, Alan, you, you've got your your Twitter account, which is notorious. And then we've got this show where you're a storyteller. And I think people want to people want to kind of get closer to what you do. We're seeing glimpses of it with Patches and Mike Rupp. And, you know, the shows have been amazing. But I think they want to know people want to know about your day to day. And right. and so we got a list of questions here, some of which we'll get to today, some of which we'll get to in an episode down the road. Uh, but some of the like, fantastic questions. So if you submit it on Discord or Twitter, thank you so much. And I'm going to I'm going to kick it off with something that I think everybody really wants to know. You know, Alan, and I'm sure you get this all the time. People want to talk trades. They want to talk the anatomy of a trade. How does it happen? So Red Shark Pack said, at what point do trade talks, uh, in trade talks, does an agent get notified that their client is being moved? How is it different for a player with no protection versus a no trade clause or a no move clause? So uh, if a player's got a no trade or a no move, uh, he effectively can't go anywhere without personally signing a waiver. And in situations where you have that kind of full trade protection, You'll have a GM typically talk to the player directly or call the agent or both and say, listen, um, we have an opportunity to move you or we want to move you or things aren't really going well for you. Would you like to be moved? Hmm. Uh, You've got full trade protection. Uh, I'll, I'll give Alan a call. Um, do you have any teams offhand you'd like me uh, to start with that you'd be willing to go to? And and in these situations, you know, big consideration is, is the player married? Does he have a family? Is he single? Um, what is he looking for for the, the, the next step in his career? Why does the team want to move him? Uh, some players have, have had a GM come to them and say, you know, would you be willing to waive uh, a no trade or no move, and the player has said, absolutely not. I I took less money to get this trade protection, and I signed this deal to be here for four years, for five years, for seven years, and I'm not going anywhere. Now, many times a GM has called and he has said, Um, I want to give you a heads up that I am involved in discussions on a deal going to this team. Mm -hmm. And maybe the GM already knows the player would want to go there and needs uh, my help in getting the trade over the finish line. And sometimes that involves, hey, you're okay to give that GM a call. And, and let him know uh, your client would be happy to play there. And you guys can have a discussion about what the world will look like after a deal gets done to give both sides that comfort level. And, and in, in other situations, you don't have any heads up at all. You don't ever know anything is going on. And you read about it on Twitter. <laughs> not to name names or specific events, right? Right now? No, of course not. Of course not. <laughs> well, and this is the thing, right? It's the, the, the idea of it. I mean, obviously, you know, we grew up playing, um, my, my generation grew up playing NHL video games. One of the most fun things about it is being the GM and being able to trade players and make your team better or whatever. So, you know, it seems fun for us, but my follow-up to that question is what, what is the reaction you often get from a player who is going to be traded? Do they love it? Are they excited about it? Or is it something where they're like, oh, what a pain in the ass? Well, it's a very emotional reaction. Um, 
I, I can tell you that on a couple of occasions, actually more than a couple, I've had a GM call me and say, I just want to let you know your client has been traded to this team and uh, uh, I'm going to give him a call in a couple of minutes, uh, but was wondering whether you wanted to tell him first. And, and, and many times a player will get a call from a GM. Usually the call is very short. Uh, you've been traded to X team. The GM will call you. Uh, I will give you a call in a couple of days when things settle down to talk further, but there's nothing more for us to talk about right now. Because the GMs usually know a player who's just been traded. A is in shock most of the time. They don't see it coming. They don't know it's happening. And uh, they want to uh, get on the phone and talk to their agent. And really, in the heat of the moment, there really isn't a time for thoughtful discourse back and forth. Those conversations after things settle for three, four, five days, um, a player and a GM to, can together have some closure. But uh, uh, it, it's, it's difficult picking up the phone and calling a client, especially if you know they're in a city with a team where they're happy to say, uh, listen, I have some news for you. I just got a call from XGM and you've been traded and you're going here. Um, players have um, um, broken down and cried on the phone sometimes. Um, wives, kids uh, have cried. Um, I had a player call me once the day after. Uh, a trade. And he said, you know, I was pretty surprised when I got the word and uh, my wife wasn't as surprised and was kind of okay with it. But what really got me, Alan, was when my kid said to me, daddy, why did you have to get traded? Why do I have to leave my school? You know, daddy, why did you do this to me? And, and those are the kind of behind the scenes things, you know, trade deadline is, is a big deal uh, in the hockey world. And, uh, UFA is a big deal in the hockey world and, and people regard it almost as sport. Um, I regard it as, um, you know, a time where there's going to be a lot of, uh, emotional things happening. Yes. Players make a lot of money and I'm not looking for sympathy from anybody for the lives they lead. Every player knows they, if they don't have the trade protection, they can be traded at any time. But there is a human element to uh, what goes into a trade that people shouldn't lose sight of. And uh, I know that for me, trade deadline is a date where literally every player is on edge. You know, they're going to see a guy, a friend, a teammate um, in their dressing room leave that day. And they don't know who it's going to be, but it's very rare that a team does nothing. So uh, going into that day, it's, it's very stressful. Free agency is another day where, you know, there's a lot of movement, guys changing teams, um, also very emotional. Wow. Yeah, that's the perspective, I think, that, that you know, people just don't, see right you know they're putting trade proposals together online and tweeting about it and that sort of thing but there is that and i uh i can imagine i can imagine you're drained after that you emotionally you're you're you I mean the end of those days you're you're wiped out um you're usually you know once the deadline uh hits and the bell rings and it's over and all the deals backed up at central are are slowly revealed and you get the word that okay we're all done for the night is when you then uh transition into guys needing to make flights say goodbye to their families what they need to bring with them how long they're going to be gone um arranging you know uh, pickups from the airport where they're going to stay um 
you, you know, sometimes a family will say, well, we're going to go back to our off-season home now and not stay where we are during the season. And we're mm-hmm. not going to go with, with dad um, or we're going to, you know, all travel together and go in the next couple of days and people are packing up their lives. So that's when you, you put on your agent hat and the, and the, the role that you play in helping manage their lives off the ice. And uh, that's when the work starts, when, uh, the, when that buzzer goes and, you know, there's not going to be any more trades down the pike. Whew. <laughs> that's uh that's a that sounds pretty crazy and you have to turn it around really quickly a lot of those guys are in town the next day right yep. some wow. guys leave the same day oh um <laughs> uh what would you say um uh uh is and again we're going to go back to to negotiations here angie hockey says do prior dealings with gms affect new negotiations with other clients. Curious if there are any GMs that hold grudges or any GMs that are friendlier than others and you have a better relationship with. Now, I know you can't get into specifics. Right. But but you you definitely have, you, you know, relationships within the definition of how you operate inside the relationship where um, if you've done several deals over the years I mean, this is my 27th year in the business. Um, I've dealt with every GM and, and, and not just with GMs, but usually the guys that have come up in the business, I knew them when they were scouts uh, <laughs> or I knew them when they were players. And then I knew them when they got their first jobs in management and worked with them when they were assistant GMs or directors of player personnel or pro scouts. And, and then as they ascended to the GM job, it's somebody that I've known, interacted with, been on the road with, been over in Europe with for, for years already. So you have that relationship um, of, of, Hey, you know, I know you, you know, me, we've been, you know, friends, within the definition of that relationship for a long time now. And, and when we uh, interact uh, in a negotiation, you know, you usually you push it over the finish line. And then the next time on the next player, um, you, you have that um, uh, commonality of interest in getting deals done and you also have a familiarity of who you're dealing with, hmm. and, and that's key. Uh, but sometimes um, the best deals and the most interesting negotiations are with people who are relatively new on the scene that you didn't really have a chance to negotiate with before. And, and you know, it's sort of like, oh, this is new and different and Everybody's got their own style and things they rely on, um, things they like to discuss in the negotiation. Um, I personally like to negotiate face to face. Okay. And and I'm the first guy to say, hey, you know what? I'll get on a plane. Um, where are you going to be? Let's meet up. Let's have lunch. Let's ha- let's have dinner. Let's meet for breakfast. Let's meet for coffee, and let's meet face to face. I think those negotiations always are better than just on the phone. Sometimes, you know, whether it's the pandemic or just logistically timing, you you need to do it uh, over the phone. I one time negotiated an entry-level contract uh, for a player drafted in the top six of the NHL draft. And we were coming up against the deadline in the summer where uh, the player was from Europe and needed to be signed by July 15th um, or he couldn't be signed for the year. And uh, it was before cell phones were ubiquitous and the GM was on the road staying at a hotel in Chicago And we were on the phone almost nonstop for a day and a half. And I was actually in a hotel room in Slovakia. And uh, and we got the deal done um, about three, four hours before the deadline. 
Um, and, and, and the GM was talking to me a couple of days later and he said, uh, you want, you want to know something funny? He goes, well, not so funny, but funny. I said, sure. He goes, when I checked out of the hotel in Chicago, I had a $1,600 phone bill to Slovakia. <laughs> he can run that through the team though, right? <laughs> I think, I think I had about $500. Yeah. You're talking on the phone and you're dialing, you know, from your hotel room and there's no cell phones back then. There's no other way to make the call. Yeah. No kidding. Ah. So, so, you know, you mentioned something in there about being available. Right. You, you, you like I, I will come to you face to face. I will uh, I'll jump on a plane. One of the things that um, that I have found about working with Alan Walsh is that you're Alan is about the most reachable person in the world. Alan, there isn't a time where uh, I text you where I'm not going to hear back, probably unless it's late at night, probably uh, within an hour. And that's great for a guy like me and, and Jesse who are producing this show. It's great because it's like, hey, we need a quick answer on this one. Alan's all, always prompt and always positive. And, I, you know, it was interesting when um, I think it was Max Pacioretty, I think, or was it Mike Rupp? Mike Rupp said, I called you early in the morning, but I knew you'd pick up. That was Max. Said, that, was that was Max. Max. Yeah. What Mike Rupp said was, you know, I could call you at three o'clock in the morning and you're available to talk. Yeah. So with the time difference, you know, from from 3 a.m. East Coast to to midnight uh, where where I am on the on the left coast. Yes. And so so a couple of things with that, Alan, is that something that you personally have instituted? And number two, do you have any time that's really your own? And that's a question for me. Okay. Um, my my feeling has always been that. Uh, to be an effective agent, there are no boundaries of time. It is not a nine to five job. It's a lifestyle, right? Mm -hmm. So whether I was driving my son to hockey or taking my daughter somewhere or in my office or out for dinner with my wife or sleeping at two o'clock in the morning if a client is texting or calling, I'm available. And, and what I'm really proud of is all of my clients know that it's like, if I got a problem and it's 1 a.m. or 2 a.m., I can text Alan, I can call Alan, and he will answer because I keep my ringer on and it is on my night table and it has been like that ever since I've had my first cell phone. So a lot of people, you know, when they go to bed, they turn the ringer off or they turn their phone off. Like, I, I don't know what that is. And, um, and, and part of, uh, you know, I don't sleep a lot. I've never been someone who sleeps a lot. You know, for me, three, four hours a night is my average time, you know, sleeping. Um, but if I... It, I, I tend to, when I'm sleeping, roll over, grab my phone, scroll through text messages that may have come in, you know, maybe from Europe with mm -hmm. the time difference or since I've been out and, and, and like, uh, okay, put it down and go back to bed. And I'll probably do that two or three times during the night um, just to make sure there's no fires burning anywhere. So are there any days off? Um, you know, I think you have to set some boundaries somewhere. Um, you know, I, I've gotten a call and, and I'll be, you know, with my wife out for dinner, mm -hmm. uh, or away for the weekend and I'll answer the phone and the player will say, Hey, how's it going? I'm like, good. What are you doing? He's like, Oh, I'm away with my wife for the weekend. Oh, okay. Oh, you know, let's talk. I go, anything important? No, no, no. I was just calling a, you know, just to, just to talk, catch up, whatever. No problem. You know, like we'll talk in a day or two, but if it's urgent, I'll stand up, go outside, you know, and, and talk about what's going on. Wow. That's uh that's, that's pretty amazing. And probably requires a little bit of patience from your family as well. Right. 
Um, incredible patients. Uh, I'm, I'm very fortunate. My wife uh, is amazing. Uh, patient, understanding, supportive. My kids. Uh, my kids really grew up in the business. Mm-hmm. They've known all the players that I've represented. Um, they've known some of the kids of, of clients uh, of mine and everyone always kind of, there are opportunities when you get together, my kids come with me to a game and we go down, go down afterwards and, and see a client. And uh, there's that interaction, that familiarity, that, that family feeling. And that certainly exists uh, with me and my family. Uh, they've sacrificed a lot. And, and I've, you know, over the years, it, at times, I've missed a birthday where I couldn't be in LA. Um, you know, I've, I've had to be at a tournament or world juniors, you know, and, or you go, go somewhere and you miss Valentine's day, or, you know, there were very few times, but it happened where you miss a school play because you just have to be somewhere. And, and as much as, I mean, there were times where I've actually been on the East coast, got on a plane Friday, flew back to LA for something on Saturday or Sunday with the family, got back on a plane and flew back to the East coast for Monday. You know, I've done that a few times. And when you can do that, you, you will, my kids and my wife know Mm -hmm. uh, how important family is to me. But at the same time, they also know how important the business is to me too. And it's there's always a trade-off. You do your best. You do everything that you can do to be present when you are home in their lives, and uh, and you hope everybody understands when when you have failings and you you can't do what you'd like to do. You said you've been in the business for 27 years. So we have a question here, uh, and this is from uh, Claire Palmster. How and why did you make the jump from the DA's office in Los Angeles? You were a county prosecutor. Yep. Uh, and a young one, too. You were like in your mid-20s. Uh, then switched to being an NHL agent. Now, I know part of this will be told on a podcast in the future. Right. But can we tease it? Yeah, I can give a, uh, a Coles Notes version of, uh, of, of what happened. Um, I knew from when, when I was seven, eight years old and people asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I always said I wanted to be a lawyer and a professional hockey player. I wanted to play in the NHL. That was my dream. And I played hockey and uh, I was a goalie in my community, but I always had a fascination, uh, a strong interest in the law. I, I mean, I remember vividly being seven years old and faking a stomach ache to stay home in Montreal to watch the Watergate hearings. And, uh, and, and when my dad would come home from work, I would tell him about, uh, you know, John Dean's testimony before the Watergate committee and uh, John Mitchell's testimony. And uh, dad, they, they had this guy, Alexander Butterfield who planted you know, listening devices at the request of the president all over the White House. There's tapes, you know, and and um, there was nobody my age at the time who even knew what the heck Watergate was. And I was obsessed with it and fascinated by it. And I just always knew that I wanted to be a lawyer. And, and through my playing days, um, I wanted to represent players. That's what I wanted to do. And that's the reason why I went to law school. So my plan was, I didn't really know how it was going to happen, but I just, I'm going to go get a law degree and then I'm going to represent players. Uh, And then in my last year of law school, uh, I uh, did an internship at the DA's office and one of the things that's very unique about California is if you've completed two years of law school and you have a licensed attorney sitting next to you, you can make appearances at court. So I was going down in my third year of law school to um, municipal court 
And I was doing felony preliminary hearings, 10, 15 a day. Uh, well, I wasn't even a lawyer yet. You know, I had a, I had a, a, a DA next to me, had been in the office for 30 years, who'd go down to court with me. I'd carry 15 files. He'd carry the LA Times. He'd spread out the LA Times on council table and be like, you know, uh, you know, give me a shout if you need some help. And he was just interested in, in reading the LA Times and not being bothered. And I was there doing uh, robberies, assault with deadly weapons, burglaries, uh, possession of cocaine, possession of cocaine for sale, attempted murder. And I was, you know, 24 years old and I was still studying law. I hadn't even, you know, thought about taking the bar yet. So, <laughs> I mean, it was a unique experience and, and being exposed to that. I fell in love with it. I, I wanted to be a trial lawyer. I wanted to try cases in front of a jury. Uh, it was really unique at the LADA's office at that time. There were extreme budget cuts and uh, you weren't, um, you, you had all these budget cuts and they literally threw these um, uh, uh, cases at you. Like, it wasn't like I was like the third chair or the fourth chair and I was just watching somebody do it. I mean, I tried a felony uh, case before a jury the week I got sworn in as an attorney in California. Wow. And I didn't even know where to stand when talking to the jury. I had the judge have to tell me, you know, you've got to stand over there. You don't stand at counsel table when you do your opening statement. I didn't know. And, and I tried, you know, I ended up getting into a unit uh, called the Hardcore Gang Division. And I tried uh, uh, about 40 murder cases over the course of a five-year period. And, and it was after that five years, I'm approaching 30 years of age, that I, I decided that I really wanted to go back to the reason why I went to law school in the first place, and that was to represent players. And, and, and that's a whole other story from there that I will uh, tell with certain people who are going to come on as guests um, in the future. I have heard that story and I'm very much looking forward to that podcast because uh, I think you're going to be uh, you're going to be blown away with just how this story starts and uh, the differences in the game between then and now. And the whole thing is it's fascinating. I, I can't wait for that show to come out. Um, Alan, along those lines, you know, I'm sure you're aware and I'm sure you get these requests all the time. There are a lot of young people just like yourself. They they um, they are obsessed with the law. They're obsessed with sports. They you know they get the love for hockey. They get the love for sports. Um, they want to become agents, and you don't necessarily need to be a lawyer to become an agent, but it's probably a good idea. Do you have recommendations for? And this is a question directly from Anderson Runs on Twitter. Advice for young or aspiring agents. Can be any sport, just didn't doesn't need to be hockey specific. But what are the things, two or three things that you tell everybody that asks you that question? So I, I get that question asked a lot. And, and what I say to people is, you know, I was at one time way back when I was you. I was a guy who wanted to be in the business. I wasn't. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any connections into the business. I wanted in. And uh, the LA Times had an insert every Sunday. And the Sunday insert had one weekend a uh, photo of the top agent in baseball. And he was holding uh, a baseball bat like this with a big smile on his face suit and tie, cufflinks, and, uh, and it had uh, circles of all of the players that he represented with all of the values of the contracts in this big arc over him. You know, and even back then, um, it would have been in the late 80s, it would have, uh, you know, probably totaled over $100 million in contract value, maybe even more than that. And he was an LA agent. So I got the phone number for his office and I called his office and I said, yes, is this gentleman available? Who's speaking? Well, my name is Alan Walsh. I'm a law student 
uh, here in LA, and I'd like to ask him some advice on on the agent business. Just a minute. Boom, he's on the line. Couldn't believe it. How could I help you? I said, yeah, I'm I'm honored to be speaking to you. And uh, I read um, this incredible feature on you in LA Times Magazine. And, uh, you know, that was a great picture on the cover of it. And I'm thinking about getting into the agent business and just wanted to know if you have any advice for me. And he said, kid, listen to me carefully. I said, okay. He goes, you gotta have balls. (laughs) You just gotta have balls. And I'm like, Okay, I have some specific questions. Like, how do I live while I am going around trying to build my business? Kid, balls. You need (laughs) balls. I'm like, oh, okay, okay, I got it. I got to have balls. So, you know, I'm I'm going around, you know, city to city, and I'm going to be, you know, signing players like, how do you make introductions? You know, where do you meet players? Like, I just need, how do you start? That's the question everybody has. How do you start? Kid, I'm telling you, you gotta have balls. Anyways, I gotta go. And that was the call. Wow. So, so um, it, it's kind of funny. You know, I've told that story to a few people. And every once in a while, I'll look at them, look at me who are in the know on this. And they'll be like, yeah, you got to have balls. <laughs> <laughs> now we, so, so to, to follow up, are you, are, is the, is the advice you got to have balls? <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, what you, what you need to do is so many people reach out to me, you know, emails, text messages, you know, and I, I can't take every single call, but when I'm available, I'm happy to hop on a phone and talk to somebody. And the question always comes around to how do you get started? And, and really there's no, um, there's no guidebook. There's no blueprint. Every agent has a fascinating, but unique story on how they got into the business, how they started right? Everybody's got a great story. It's a, it's a fascinating business. And whether you're talking about the top basketball agents or football agents, some played, many didn't. And, and how they got, sometimes they got started, you know, by happenstance. I, I knew a very successful agent in hockey who one time said to me, I, I wanted to be a basketball agent. And I was recruiting, trying to recruit basketball players and, and a friend of a friend said, you know, I don't know if you're interested in hockey at all, but I know this hockey player who just left his agent and he's available. Why don't you go meet him? And the guy said, I went and met him and, you know, ended up, hey, I'm now a hockey agent, you know, and, and, and went from one client to three clients to five clients because word of mouth spread. And this guy was originally thinking, I'm going to represent basketball players, ended up a very successful hockey agent. Everyone's got stories like that. The, 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 the moral to me is if I'm giving advice to people, go do something, do it. Don't talk about it. Don't read about it. Go do it. If you put yourself into the arena, if you put yourself into the action, good things will happen. You know, you believe in yourself, but yeah, but so many people say, well, you know, I just didn't know how to get started. Well, did you do anything? Did you go to a junior game? Did you go to, I mean, like, did, did you do things to get yourself into the business? And I mean, I was picking up the phone in 1995, cold calling uh, GMs and coaches in the, in the OHL. And, uh, uh, a couple of uh, uh, coaches said to me, I was like, hey, I'm a, a new agent. I'm just starting out. This is my first week in the business. You're one of my first calls. If, if I come out and see you, you know, will you give me some time? Talk to me about the agent business. Give me advice on how I can get started. And one guy, one guy was like, oh, yeah, sure. Come on out. 
So um, I had three or four people say, come on out. So I got on a plane in L.A. I flew to Montreal, rented a car and I drove into Ontario and I roll into my first city and I knock on the door of the coach's office. Come on in. Yeah. uh, Hi, it's uh, Alan Walsh. I'm that new agent just starting out. Uh, I called you last week. You did. Yeah, yeah, you said, come on out and, you know, you, you know, you, you'd meet with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I have a relationship with an agent. All my players are represented by the same agent. You know, sorry, I got no time for you. And the guy said to me, come on out. You know, I, I flew 3000 miles, oh. you know, to, to, to meet the guy. So I go to the next city, knock on the door. Uh, come on in. I go into the arena, knock on the door, go in. Uh, yeah, hi, uh, yeah, Alan Walsh. Who? I, I called you last week. You know about you're the guy from L.A. Yeah, he goes, and you came. I said, <laughs> I said, yeah. He goes, let me tell you something, pal. I've gotten five or six calls like yours over the last couple of years. You're the first guy to ever really show up. And and from that, walking into his office that day. Uh, over the course of that year and the next year, ended up representing six or seven players on his team. And there you go. And there you go. And that is, you know what? Uh, To to bring it back to the first story, cold calling takes balls. It's not easy to call a complete stranger and go, hey, are you interested? Do you want to talk? That's how this show sort of started. It was a cold call. So, you know, I think you got to, to your point, Alan, the agent in maybe not the most eloquent terms, was absolutely right. You gotta have balls. Gotta have balls. <laughs> now back to the um, uh, uh, back to the uh, some of the like the hockey questions. Department of Player Safety stuff has come up a lot this season, and especially recently. You, Can you run us department, through Department of Player Suspensions? Yes. <laughs> oh, okay. I just want to make sure so- we're talking about the same department. Yes. Well, so I, I, a lot of people wanted to ask, Rachel specifically wanted to ask about what is it really like? Is the agent involved? Are you on the call if there's a call offered um, or if they're an in-person is offered? And, and you, how does that process work like face-to-face with the league? Okay. So my, my favorite story uh, regarding that, and, and really the process hasn't changed in a long time, was I was in Finland in Helsinki at a tournament, and uh, uh, I'm I'm back in uh, my hotel in the morning, and uh, phone rings and it's Marty Havlak. Okay, and he and he, he's like, "Hey, are are you still in Finland?" Yeah, he goes, "Did you hear about the game?" No. Oh, I uh, I got a match penalty. I think you may be hearing something about it in the next couple of hours. I'm like, uh oh, I'm like, all right, let's see what happens. And a little while after getting off the phone, I get the email, right? Which is the department of player suspensions is uh, holding a hearing. And the email is to the NHLPA, the agent of record, the player, the GM, the whole, everybody's CC'd on this. And there's going to be a hearing at, let's say, 11 a.m., 1, a, 1 p.m. local time. And the agent is on the call. OK. And if it's suspension is contemplated to be less than five games, it's a phone conference call hearing. If it's more than five games, uh, they have to offer in the past a in-person hearing. Um, now I guess it's an in-person Zoom hearing, mm-hmm. and uh, the player goes into the GM's office. The GM is on speakerphone. The agent is on the line. The league is on the line. Uh, the NHLPA is on the line, and the hearing commences. And uh, the the league uh, distributes before the hearing video of the alleged infraction um and whether it's a um you know high hit or an elbow or uh leaving the bench uh uh to engage in a in a fight 
or uh, or a high stick slash whatever it is. It's on video and it's distributed to everybody. And the league uh, talks about um, uh, the video briefly. And then usually the first person to speak is is the player and the player. They'll say, "Okay, here's what we see on the video. Can you give us your version of what happened? And the player will run through exactly what he was thinking, what he did uh, from his point of view. And then the GM will add anything from the GM's point of view. Uh, And then the uh, NHLPA will add anything uh, from uh, their point of view uh, with regard to the procedures, uh, with regard to uh, conforming the hearing to what is in the CBA. And then the agents is asked to speak, but the agent's participation is usually limited to um, character references regarding the player and his conduct, uh, specifically whether the player has any prior incidents of suspensions uh, within the past 18 months or ever in his career. Um, and, and hopefully uh, there are no priors. So that would be a, a mitigating circumstance in the player's favor. Okay. And that's really what the agent will discuss. And then uh, you get off the call, and within a couple of hours, uh, usually the uh, uh, Department of Player Suspension will contact the GM, uh-huh. and the GM will contact the agent and the player, um, or the NHLPA will get the first word. Every situation is a bit different, and the uh, NHLPA will call the agent and say, we just heard Here's the result. One game suspension, two game suspension, no suspension. It's just a fine, uh, although that's rare. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's basically the process that you go through. Is, is the mood intense? Is it stressful? Is it relaxed? How would you describe it? No, it's very informal. Okay. Um, not stressful at all. Um, everyone speaks freely. It's not like a court of law. Uh, there's no rules of evidence. Uh, there's no judge. There's no objections. Um, everybody sort of has an opportunity to be heard. And then ultimately, uh, uh, the uh, decision will be made. Okay. Well, that affects a, f- a few players, uh, I believe, this week that uh, are pertinent to some of our listening audience. Sir. So we'll leave it at that. Um, a couple last questions here before we wrap this one up, because we're going to save some of these other ones. There's some great ones in here. Um, for an episode closer to Christmas. Now, um, uh, Alan, uh, one we got was, what was your impression of Steve Dangle before meeting him officially? Do you, do you have any initial impressions? Um, I, had, I had seen uh, a, a couple of, uh, of, of shows, a couple of podcasts, and a couple of his, um, the shorter videos that he would do. LFRs, uh, yes. Right, LFRs uh, with uh, with another network, and uh, I I had seen a, a few of those in the past, and uh, I I, th- I thought Steve was funny. I I always was attracted to the fact, you know, I I love to see passion. I love to see passion from from fans. Anybody you interact with, the 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 when when somebody doesn't have a passion for what they're doing. It rubs me the wrong way. And, and in my, you know, I, I, I've never met Steve. I've talked to him a few times, uh, but I've never actually physically been in his presence, but I knew I had a familiarity with who he was. And uh, I, I guess the one word I would use to describe Steve before I ever spoke to him was he was passionate about what he loves. (laughs) <laughs> yes yes i think that's a the understatement of the year <laughs> now um i i'm asking this last question because i think it sets us up pretty nicely for next week okay for our surprise guest for our surprise guest am i i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say who right no you're not not gonna say who we're gonna spring that later but can i ask you about the top five tracks from a particular artist 
of which there's an association. Is that fair? Yes. Okay. So your favorite uh, artist of all time, and you've seen this person I, I, countless times, I'm sure you could probably name, is who? Uh, Bruce Springsteen. And I've, pro I've probably seen him live. First time was 1978 in concert uh, on the Darkness on the Edge of Town tour. And I've probably seen him well over 120 times in my life, you know, probably closer to 140. I lost count. Um, and I've seen him all over the world. And uh, I would say that uh, his music has been the soundtrack to my life. Wow. And uh, his music kept me great company through high school, through college, through law school. And uh, every album that he released um, intersects with a period of my life. And, uh, and, and I love his music. I know literally every song. I know every word to every song. I know and have a collection of songs that have never been released. Don't report me to anybody. Um, <laughs> you know, hundreds of songs that haven't been released that have never seen the light of day. Um, and uh, pardon the pun for people who get that. And um, uh, there is something about him and the band uh or him solo it's always different but it's always compelling um that that just i i'm i'm in it for life i'm a lifer there it is and and springsteen fans tend to be like that it's not you're not halfway in with bruce springsteen you are all the way in on bruce springsteen so i i wanted to ask you this if anybody if you're telling people to get into it your top five bruce springsteen songs would be which ones and we're gonna go I don't know. If there, is there an order here? Is it five to one or is it just five songs that you love? Well, here's the thing. Every week, if you ask me that question, it probably would be um, out of the five, three of them would be different. There's two okay. that will always be there no matter what. But there's just so many and so many that are, are meaningful to me. Sometimes it's the day or my mood or, or what I've been listening to recently because I'm always listening to, to some Bruce, um, you know, every day and, and through, uh, uh, the course of a week. So, um, my high school yearbook under my photo, uh, for quotation is tramps like us, baby, we were born to run the same with graduating from McGill, uh, quote tramps like us, baby, we were born to run. And it was the same thing in law school. Uh, so Born to Run, number one, uh, Thunder Road, number two, and that'll never change. And then you can put different songs in there for me. I've always loved Lost in the Flood from Bruce's first album, Greetings uh, from Asbury Park. Phenomenal song. Um, I've always loved uh, New York City Serenade from his second album. There's a live version. Uh, Bruce released a video, too, uh, which was special from Rome. He was on stage in Rome and they did the song with full orchestra. Wow. He ended up uh, his last tour. He opened with that song, numerous shows with a local orchestra everywhere. He went, he'd teach the orchestra, the intro and uh, violins and strings. It's, it's phenomenal. And uh, just a, a, a real, um, I, I mean, a show stopping song and to have him open with it was just mind blowing. But that Rome uh, version is, is outstanding. Um, you know, and then I, you know, probably include like a song off of the Nebraska album, Highway Patrolman, mm -hmm. uh, which is a great song. Uh, I always think of family when I hear that song, um, you know, but you can, whether it's the river or, uh, prove it all night, badlands, you know, there are songs that are always going to come back in, uh, downbound train, Bobby Jean, uh, land of hope and dreams. Um, um, for me, one song, I mean, I, I kid you not, I'm almost embarrassed by it, but on his most recent album, Letter to You, uh, there's one song called If I Was the Priest, which Bruce actually played at his initial demo audition with Columbia Records to John Hammond, the legendary a &R guy with Columbia. And Bruce played it on the piano 
And, and that version is, has been widely distributed amongst collectors. And, and I've had that for many years. I knew the song well. The first time I heard the full E Street Band version that was recorded two Novembers ago in uh, Bruce's uh, studio on the farm, I broke down in tears. I'm sitting there crying. My wife's walking in like, what's the matter? And I'm pointing to the music and she's like rolling her eyes and walking away, shaking her head, you know, but uh, if I was the priest is just a phenomenal song. Well, Alan, it's been, you know, what's fun about these is, is you get to notice somebody just a little bit better and um, you know, as I've gotten to know you, you're a heart and soul guy. You can hear it in the music and you can hear it in the stories. Um, we have such an exciting road here that we're going on. Like this is just the beginning. Next week's going to be amazing. And 2022, when this, this all is going to continue, obviously, um, it's just going to be spectacular. There's so many stories we got to tell so many rocks unturned. Uh, so thanks for letting us kind of pry into your life a little bit here. We really appreciate it. You got it. And just to give people a little tease for what's coming uh, uh, and answer some of the questions that we've been getting offline. Yes, there will be an NHL GM coming on as a guest sometime in the near future. Um, Yes, there will be agents from other sports and the entertainment world coming on later in in this first season. Uh, I think we're going to be going outside of the uh, rubric of just hockey mm-hmm. and speaking uh, more widely on sports in general, maybe even include some of the things that have gone on um, in the entertainment world. Uh, we're going to do a, a episode on my life as a prosecutor in the DA's office and have a real special guest coming on to talk about that down the road. Um, so this is, this has been a lot of fun so far. I'm really enjoying it, and uh, and uh, we'll see everybody next week. <laughs>